if you would, please turn to Luke 7 first. Going to begin with verse 36, with verse 36. Listen carefully to the holy, infallible word of God. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven For she loved much, for he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sin? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Once again, 2 Timothy three sixteen through 17, in terms of our series from this passage. <clears throat> 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training and righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. 
Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we ask that our hearts would be open to the correction of thy spirit and thy word in the accomplished redemption of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Help us to be attentive to our own hearts, our own needs, the understanding we need from the word of God. For we all know and we all confess, O Lord, that we are short. We ask thy spirit to pawn us this morning with thy word. In Christ's name, amen. Are you a person who loves correction? Are you a person who loves correction? Well, it depends on where it comes from and when it comes. As a child, I accepted the correction of my parents because they were my parents. But at times, I was not so willing to receive the corrections of my brothers and sisters. For myself, I know that I enjoy correction in times of my life in which I have no idea what I am doing. For example, I enjoy people coming and helping me concerning the computer. (laughs) But I can find myself being more defensive when people make observations about my weaknesses. At that point, I usually do not enjoy correction. Can I assume that for all of us, that self-pride is almost always a roadblock to our correction? Yes, pride can be a terrible roadblock to correction. When approached by our brother and sister in Christ, we sometimes dig in and respond, either face-to-face or privately, who are you? Who are you to correct me? We love to play the hypocrite card. At other times, in the context of corrective confrontation, we may resort to our independent natures, We swell up with personal arrogance and demand that everyone leave us alone. I can correct my own faults and shortcomings. I can do it myself. Don't bug me. (laughs) Stay off my back. (laughs) The sad point, and yet the truly honest point, is that we express too often the same attitude towards the corrective measures of our Lord. When his word 
is directed right to our hearts to convict us of sin and repentance. If you love Christ, if you love Christ and the instruction of his word, then you see you, would, you should expect the love of God's relentless chastening of those whom he loves. What a beautiful consolation to our souls, which needs the daily pursuit of God's discipline in our lives. But where will you find the daily corrective measures of our Lord in your very life? The answer is in the Holy Scripture. For in the scriptures, you will not only be corrected, but you will be shown through the discipline and the love of God, the way of restoration to your heart. In our continuing series here on 2 Timothy 3, 16, We are investigating the four characteristics concerning the practical, the practical use of Scripture. This morning we come to the third characteristic, that third characteristic which is correction. We have already seen that the Scripture is practical, first of all in instructing and teaching us the will of God. And that, and that the Bible secondly reproves, exposes our faults, and convicts us of our sin and the need for repentance. Last week we noted that reproof has a, correct, has a corrective component, has a corrective component to it in terms of rebuking exposing our faults and convicting our hearts at the very root of sin against our majestic, our majestic creator. As we continue forward, keep in mind that this corrective tool is a means to an end so that you may stand upright, upright, even as you bow in humility before the presence of your eternal Christ. Yes, as you may be presently equipped for every good work, you are now immediately before the final presence of God. Chapter 4, verse 2, we have pointed that out before in this passage going forward. Oh, when we hear these words, hopefully, your whole disposition this morning changes inside of you. You do not seek independence. You do not seek independence from the Lord. You do not seek liberation from his presence. You do not spout your pride and arrogance before his throne. No. 
You are a people who covet, who covet discipline. You covet the Lord's wisdom. You covet his understanding. You covet his correction, the direction and instruction that comes from his truthfulness, the straightness, the straightness of his word. Oh, congregation, again, enter into the pastoral content of Paul's instruction of Timothy here. Paul's presupposes the scripture is addressing sinners in Christ's church. Sinners who claim redemption in Christ, who continue to need to be pastored by the nurturing power and counsel of the Holy Scriptures. Now grasp the movement the movement of Paul's use of these characteristics in the text before you. Keep in mind here that repentance is the goal of biblical reproof, what we talked about in last week's message. As we have seen, true repentance means that one's heart has truly turned from their sin and fallen broken and prostrate before the presence of God in order to begin their life fresh and new again. Such a posture of repentance comes upon the repentant sinner because this person is truly overwhelmed by the fact that he is now standing in the presence, even now, of the final judge and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now come to the word. Now coming to the word of our text this morning, The word correction is the word we are looking at today. Please notice this. The Greek noun for the word translated correction also has the meaning of improvement. Has the meaning of improvement. This is very, very important. It is correction unto improvement in living the Christian life of sanctification. Let us get some further insight. The Greek noun comes from the verb form meaning to restore, to raise up again. To reform, to reestablish. You see, the Greek word here has the continuation of the thought of coming out of repentance. The Bible, as a corrective tool, restores the sinner, it reforms the sinner. It reestablishes the sinner. It lifts the sinner up again. The sinner 
comes under the conviction of the word of God and proceeds under the corrective, improving power of that word into a life of continual faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. There should be no surprise in so-called professing Christians that they will ignore and justify sin in their life when they are not living daily in God's word. If you are not in the word of God, do not be surprised if your life is a mess. Is a mess. Now, there is one other important observation to make of the Greek word here. The Greek word here translated correction is from the root word orthos, meaning standing straight up, upright, correct, right, and true. It is the Greek word that we get the word, English word, orthodox. For example, congregation, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church does not mean we are the only true Presbyterian Church or the only pure church. I'm sure you've heard that remark before. No, the idea is that we are committed to standing straight up, upright, for the true heritage of Presbyterianism as we continue to live in humility in a land that has sadly witnessed desertion from Scripture among various Presbyterian denominations. The name was not chosen out of pride, but to remind us of our roots, our roots that go back into the Reformation. Even so, most important, the full force of our Greek term here is beginning to hit home. The Bible's corrective mechanism has the power and the ability to enable us to stand upright, to stand straight up, so that your daily life is an example, is an example of the correcting, improving tool that the scripture is true and right. We are embracing such a life by faith. Congregation, Do you want the corrective life from the power of Scripture before you? I ask you, do you? Luke gives three interesting incidents of our Lord directing us to the root of this Greek word. Jesus in the house of Simon the Pharisee, Jesus and a lawyer, and Christ's response to a corrupt 
to the corrupt Pharisees attempting to trap him in his last week of his life. I'm only going to take time this morning to just summarize the first two and make a couple of points on this. First, the house of Simon the Pharisee in chapter 7 of Luke. We read that passage this morning. A woman comes into the house, Jesus, excuse me, Jesus comes into the house of Simon the Pharisee, and a woman who is a sinner comes into the house, finds out that he is there, and comes in and pours out in her tears at his feet her repentance, her life of faith. With her tears, her tears are so much in abundance that she is able to wipe the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ with her hair. And she anoints his feet with the alabaster oil himself as she she stoops and is there serving the Lord. Simon objects. Don't you know that you are being touched by a sinner? What on earth? Why would you allow a sinner to touch you? At this point, Jesus presents the terrible which you know about the two debtors. The one owed 500 denarii, the other owed 50 denarii. When they could not repay the creditor, the creditor forgave both debts. Who felt more forgiven Simon responded with the one, the one who owned the, owned the most. Christ responded, you have rightly judged. Chapter 7, verse 43, the term rightly is our word, is our word. Now, Jesus is not finished correcting Simon. In fact, here is what is interesting. Christ is correcting Simon by using the woman who is living the corrective life. The woman is demonstrating true repentance in her action for her sin. She has become a true servant of her master and king. She demonstrates that she seeks the forgiveness of sin as a sinner and that she receives the forgiveness of sins as a sinner. She herself is a testimony of living faith. Living faith. Once again, her life of being one, a servant. Her life of two, forgiveness from sin. And her life three, living life of saving faith. All presupposes, please do not miss this. Don't make this a moralism. All presupposes the cross of Christ. The cross of Christ. There's no restoration for her, none whatsoever, 
unless Jesus himself goes to the cross and makes effectual the work that she has just done to him. Very crucial in terms of understanding the situation. Her life, her life stands corrected, improved by the incarnate word of God, Jesus Christ. And now she lives, she lives the life of the cross of subjection, subjection and service in Christ's eternal kingdom. Do you want that kind of correction? in your life. Jesus and a certain lawyer have a conversation. This is not the rich young lawyer. This is Luke chapter 10, if you wish to look, verses 25 through 37. The lawyer asked that if, what must he do to inherit eternal life? Christ takes him to the law and asks him how he understood the law. The lawyer responds with the summary of the law. Love God and neighbor. Here comes our word once again. Jesus says, you have answered rightly. Now, will the young lawyer stand up? And repent and live the right life. <laughs> Do this and live, Christ says. But then he goes into the question, you know the story, because this is the context of the Good Samaritan. He goes in to justify himself. And he says, who is my neighbor? (laughs) You know the narrative. Luke addressed the issue of the neighbor, and thus Jesus tells him the parable of the Good Samaritan to illustrate who his neighbor is. Christ is not endorsing salvation by works here. Christ is exposing the utter failure of this man to understand the law correctly. That the law exposes, remember our message last week, reproof, exposes. The law exposes the heart of man, not the outward letter. Congregation, the law as illustrated by the parable of the Good Samaritan is a law that directs us to the life of absolute denial of self as Christ denied his position from eternity and died for us on the cross. The good Samaritan presupposes the life of the cross. 
That is why the social gospel and non, the non-Christian will never understand this parable. You can see it. Even governments, even places in our own government want to enforce a good Samaritan laws at times. And that's because they don't understand. They think it's a good moral to live by. They don't understand that this parable presupposes the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ and his servanthood. His servanthood. And that's why humanity can't live by it. But will you Will you? Will you stand corrected by the Old Testament law? Will you allow the law to expose your heart and the interpretation that Christ gives it? Will you not, not deny yourself in the service of others, taking up your cross and following your Savior as he has laid the pattern for you at Calvary. This is powerful. This is powerful living. As I received an email this week, Dr. D, this principle is so hard. To live by denying self and living for Christ. Return to Second Timothy three sixteen. Scripture as a means to an end. Scripture is the subject. Here, not you. Scripture is pressing you to the end of making you complete, thoroughly equipped in every good work. And those good works will place you before the presence of Christ as they even now are done in his presence. Are these meritorious Are these works meritorious on your part? Let me show you what is happening here in 2 Timothy 3.16 so that you never interpret verse 17, that is, the good works here as meritorious, which is always, always a problem for all of us. used to say when I was at the college, teaching college, to illustrate this point, how many of us walk across the campus as if we are the best dude on campus, or as I would say, dudette. (laughs) It is hard. It is hard not to think 
of ourselves and something about ourselves. There's something in us that deserves to be saved. We can't think that way in light of the cross and the resurrection of Christ. We turn to the subject. The subject here is scripture. Who writes the scripture? The final author of every iota and dot, as the ESV puts it in Matthew 5, 18, in scripture is the Holy Spirit. Who sanctifies you? Who sanctifies you? It's the Holy Spirit. The Bible clearly teaches that it is the Holy Spirit. Now watch. The text is essentially saying that the Scripture is equipping you in every good work. This is absolutely equivalent. Equivalent in saying that the Holy Spirit who is the author of the word and the one who makes the word effectual in your life is equipping you in every good work. Remember our phrase from last week's message? The same spirit who writes Holy Scripture is the spirit who sanctifies your whole person in Christ. In other words... Through the word of God, the Holy Spirit uses his own word to produce good works which are expressed in your life. There is no merit here. There is no merit here. Only the good works of the Holy Spirit in you. A life corrected, a life improved by the word of God slays any notion of meritorious works at the cross of Christ as the Spirit places his own works in us before the presence of Christ. And what is at the heart of living good works produced by the Holy Spirit through the word of God? It is living the life of denial. It is living the cross towards others. Are you willing? Are you willing this morning? Are you really living, really willing Look into your hearts through the power and the work of the Holy Spirit to seek the corrective tool of the Holy Scripture daily in order to believe and to live the upright, the upright life of truth, to live biblical orthodoxy, the life of of service and self-sacrifice grounded in Christ's life to the cross. Are you living the cross of Christ each day?
Are you a person who loves correction? By the Spirit, by Christ's Word. Let's pray for help. O Spirit of the living God, descend upon our hearts. Thou hast left us with a tremendous witness of the truth. You have instructed us and given us the direction concerning uprightness before the throne of Christ. Help us, O Lord, to seek your wisdom in your word for a life that is living in the abundance of sacrifice servanthood in the pattern of our Savior. Give us the fruits of repentance each day. In Christ's name, amen.